Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. What's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? Let's warm things up. Our little pregame topic and the NBA playoffs uh, are on a roll, right? Heading into the second round. And we always ask in basketball, which player would you want to have in the clutch or something like that, right? Which player would you want to have in a game seven with everything on the line? But I kind of wanted to switch that up here to start this episode by asking which coach would you most want to roll with of the remaining coaches in the postseason? I love this question because it, nobody asks this question, right? It's always players, especially in the NBA where, you know, it's always sort of the same coaches recycled and, and maybe we, we overvalue. We don't talk enough about it. Who knows? Uh, but I got I to gotta go with the guy who's got the most rings left in the playoffs. That's Eric Spolstra of the Miami Heat. The guy's got two rings, right? We know Nick Nurse has one just off of last year with Toronto, Doc Rivers, his ring that he won in Boston, which seems like a long time ago now. 2008 is a long time ago. Uh, but Spoh's got the most rings. If you're riding in a game seven, you want a dude who is tough as nails. And that whole Miami Heat culture, consider me like a sucker for that. Like, I love what they're all about. And I know there's no LeBron James or Dwayne Wade on that roster anymore, or even a Chris Bosh. Uh, but the 2020 Miami Heat kind of just encapsulate everything that Pat Riley has put together as sort of the puppeteer uh, behind the scenes with the Heat. Uh, they're game seven. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be a rock fight in a lot of ways. And so what they do defensively, what he has in terms of experience, uh, coaching in some pretty big game sevens, you know, in the NBA finals uh, at one point. So I got to go with Spo. And full disclosure, I know Eric Spo. I've gotten to know Eric Spoelstra a little <laughs> I bit. I knew you were going here. Um, you know, my, my dad's gotten to know his dad, John, longtime executive in the league. Uh, over the years uh, and plus Eric's just a cool guy like I've had a beer with him you know so it's like he's salt of the earth man I want one of those guys on the sidelines in the trenches when it comes to a game seven yeah and Spolster actually sounds like the brand of a craft beer so like I do think that that kind of fits the image and, and I agree with you I even think tactically speaking and, and full disclosure I interviewed Eric Spolster when he was on Maui one of these recent years he has ties to Hawaii right a part Filipino ancestry uh, he's a good guy all around. So it's, he's easy to root for, for sure, in, in, including when you consider his very humble beginnings. Tactically speaking, I agree with you. I think Eric Spolstra is the guy. But I think under these circumstances, when we get deeper into the playoffs, we need a guy that can help to sort of balance the locker room, especially in these times where it's very stressful. You're in the bubble. The bubble does funny things to you, as we are learning from even top players like Paul George. And I think when you have these big personalities, these elite players, uh, these very strong personas, you need somebody that can help 
create balance there. And the guy to me to do that, who has proven to do that, is Doc Rivers. He did it with the big three in Boston. He is doing it as it appears with the LA Clippers. I think they are, in my opinion, the favorite in the Western Conference. I think Doc Rivers, who has the pedigree as a player, who has the pedigree as a championship coach, I think he's the guy that I would be most comfortable rolling with. And even when it comes to some of the social questions and topics that are at play in these post-game interviews and in between some of these games, he's a guy that has definitely projected leadership and guidance. So uh, my guy's Doc Rivers, but I totally understand where you're coming from with Spo. So yeah, I I think uh, we're safe with our picks on that opening topic here to start the show. And speaking of starting the show, let's welcome you to another episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we will have Corey Williams on the show. He is a guy who played for Lute Olsen. The late Lute Olsen just passed away this past week. Uh, He is a legendary coach, obviously, at Arizona, but previously coached at Iowa, even coached at Long Beach State for a short time. Uh, But he played for... Lute Olsen at Arizona in the mid-90s. Corey was part of the Wildcats Final Four team back in 1994, went on to play 12 years as a professional overseas, now works as a college basketball analyst for ESPN, often covering the Pac-12 conference, and he also works in insurance. But uh, he is just a very good guy to talk to and, and, and I think really has a wonderful perspective on everything that's going on as it pertains to college sports, certainly in the way he is able to memorialize Lute Olson and what he meant to that town, to that university, to all the players uh, that Lute Olson coached. Uh, very much looking forward to playing that for all the listeners out there. Let's get to our game time discussions, and we start off with the NBA playoffs playing on. And we had two late game whistles to decide the Bucks Heat game two. Uh, isn't it funny that we're already two games into each Eastern Conference series, and yet the Western Conference series have not even begun yet? Uh, but we'll get into that in a moment. But referee Mark Davis, who is never shy to take the spotlight while being in the officiating role, called a foul against Goran Dragic against Chris Middleton on a three-point attempt, allowed him to tie the game at the free throw line with four seconds left. And then moments later, Davis again called a foul on Giannis Attentacupo on a buzzer-beating attempt by Jimmy Butler. Butler, who was not so high profile offensively in this game hit the free throws to win the game put the heat up 2-0 in that best of seven my question to you Jordan what did you think about those two jump shooting foul calls late in the game that ended up basically deciding the game yeah you know you you never want to be talking about the officials after a game like that how pivotal right Miami all of a sudden is up 2-0 if this was normal time right they'd be heading home up 2-0, what, a, what an advantage that would be. But, I mean, the difference between 1-1 for the Bucks here, who, who've really been outplayed in those two games and a chance to really steal one for, from Miami. But, yeah, you never want to be talking about those guys. I understand where Mark Davis is coming from. I was with Doris Burke, though. I, I adamantly disagreed with, with Steve Javi and the Mark Davis call on the Goran Dragic. I thought he gave Middleton enough room as a shooter to land, I thought he had, he had stayed vertical throughout the entire sequence. Uh, and I thought that was a pretty rough call, even if Steve Javid wants to argue that, hey, maybe Dragic was leaning forward a little bit. You have to allow the jump shooter to land. We saw an earlier call in that same game where Kyle Korver undercut Andre Iguodala. Nowhere near on purpose, but it, it was the right guy. It ended up being a flagrant one call because by the book it is. 
Um, and so if you're going to call that one, then you have to call the one on the other end of the floor, right? And Giannis barely, barely touches Jimmy Butler. It was well after the shot was away, too. It didn't impact whether that shot was going in or not. But if you're going to call one on one end, you got to call one on the other end. And so in effect, it works out to be the same way as if he didn't call either at either end because they all shot their free throws. They all made their free throws. And so Miami was up prior to the first of the two calls, and they were up after the second of the two calls. So did it impact the outcome of the game? I don't think so. At the end of the day, I would never call either of those as a guy who's officiated like high school basketball. So what do I know, right? Mark Davis is out here coaching <laughs> the best athletes in the world. Uh, but I will say it's, it's sequences like those that lead basically everybody in the general public to just, just have very strong negative feelings toward referees and officials. It also feeds into the theory that there is such a thing as a makeup call, right? Because, oh, yeah. hey, hey, look, because of how big a deal Doris Burke and company made of that foul that you alluded to, where Kyle Korver stepped underneath Andre Iguodala and basically impeded his landing spot. I actually thought that based on all of that rhetoric, the foul that was called that allowed Chris Middleton to go to the free throw line was justifiable because you could suggest that Dragic was in that landing zone for the shooter. But in that situation, right, it's the old question of, hey, does the referee call a foul that in an early portion of the game is considered a foul? Do you call that in the last few moments? That will be a debate until the end of time. But I actually thought that that was justifiable. The one called against Giannis, hey, look, it's a tie ball game. It's a desperation heave, in essence, by Jimmy Butler. Like, you're basically calling the game. Like, Mark Davis in that situation is basically saying, hey, look, I'm deciding who wins. Because in the previous call, hey, look, you, you sent Chris Middleton to the line and he was able to hit the free throws, and so you're pushing it to overtime. But the game isn't decided based on that. The game is decided when you say that that little ticky-tack hand on the side of Jimmy Butler from Giannis Attendacupo is a foul, you're basically saying, sorry, Bucks, you're down 2-0. And so I feel like the first foul is less egregious than the second call, but both of them appear to be Mark Davis just kind of relishing the ability to have such an impact on this thing. And you're right. I think it feeds into that narrative of people having an issue with referees, the idea of the makeup call, and it just feeds the conspiracy theorists in this situation. But at the end of the day, it's the heat. As you kind of alluded to in our last episode, you called it. You thought this was going to be a series because you thought the heat could give the Bucks problems, and they most certainly have. Uh, but it's the heat up 2-0 in this series. So speaking of heat, there will be some heat put on Giannis, the presumptive MVP for a second straight year for not being able to step it up in the postseason when the Bucks need him the most. Richard Jefferson posted on Twitter, Giannis might be a Pippin. He added, he needs his Jordan. So basically he's saying Giannis isn't necessarily a number one. He's a number two guy. Do you agree with this tweet by RJ? You gotta love RJ. He's been on fire on Twitter here as of late. Uh, especially in this series and some of the earlier Giannis comments when it came to defensive assignments. It is, it, he is so incredibly dynamic, right, Giannis Antetokounmpo. He, he is a titanic force that is kind of unlike anything we've really ever seen in terms of athleticism, his ability to score in the paint. And I think we do him a disservice in a way because we want to compare him to every great perimeter player that we've seen in recent memory and really all time. And when you're talking about some of the efficiency numbers that he's having, 
um, with the limited number of minutes he plays. But I, I, this is not an original thought. I've seen this other places, but I, I really do think he is much more comparable to like a Shaquille O'Neal. Like he is a, he's not a post player, quote unquote, like Shaq, but he is so Titanic down in the paint. And, and young Shaq was crazy athletic as well, right? And, and a lot of guys will remember that. And so I think if you think of him in that sense where he is almost unstoppable on the block, but at the end of a game, where defenses are, are geared to stop that. You need a equal, if you will, a Penny Hardaway, a Kobe Bryant, a Dwayne Wade like Shaq had in every good sequence of his NBA career. You need that perimeter complement. And so we're, we're making Giannis, I think, out to be what he is not. Uh, and thus, I think, being a little overcritical of him uh, because I, I, I just think if you, if you view him in that light, right, if he is more Shaq, than LeBron, right? Or somebody like that, this, this freak of nature on the perimeter. And I don't think that's necessarily a huge criticism of it. I, I just think people don't look at him in the right lens, if you will, as to what his skill set is. Yeah, I think that these series, the last couple of postseason, the Raptors last year and what we've seen so far here in this Heat series, they have been able to make Giannis fairly one-dimensional. Uh, it doesn't appear as though that jump shot is there when called upon here so far through two games. Uh, and I do think you can at least draw a vague comparison to LeBron in the early days, right? In 2007, when LeBron took arguably the worst team ever to the NBA Finals, they went up against the San Antonio Spurs, and they basically just walled them up. And they were like guarding LeBron from the dotted, and they were daring him to shoot. And he just didn't have the capacity at that time to take advantage of it and make the defense pay. And I just don't think Giannis is equipped for that just yet. Not when the pressure is on, not when the defensive tenacity is ramped up so high as we see from the Miami Heat. And so I do think that it's fair to suggest that they have exposed a potential flaw or at least a shortcoming in the development of Giannis Antetokounmpo's full, complete, complementary game. The guy is 25 years old. Like, he is still figuring it out, and yet he is likely to be a two-time MVP. Uh, this guy is an absolute force and an absolute freak of nature, but he does have some development left, which can be, one, discouraging if you're the Milwaukee Bucks because there is the potential of him leaving and going to another team and only improving with that said franchise. Uh, but it's also, I think, scary for the rest of the league because this guy can only get better. So I don't think it's time to give up on Giannis yet, but I do think that he can get some help schematically. I think he can get some help from some teammates. He needs a little bit of assistance. You are definitely seeing more of a team effort from the Miami Heat. And to your previous point, I think we're seeing Eric Spolstra in so far what has been one of his greatest coaching efforts, championship years with LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh included. If they make the Eastern Conference Finals, or the NBA Finals, I think you could argue that this is the best coaching job that Eric Spolstra has ever done. But I don't think it's time to bury Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, speaking of burying things, I buried the Thunder in our last episode. I didn't give them a chance. I kind of pretty much assumed that the Rockets were going to be moving on out of that series. We talked about the Rockets-Lakers matchup, and I'm really lucky at least from that standpoint, that that will be the matchup because it came down to the last few seconds in game seven of that series. The Rockets edge the Thunder. 
to move on to the second round. James Harden had a key block shot on Lou Dort in the final seconds. Who would have thought that it would come down to a James Harden defensive play? And then the Thunder botched an inbounds play to end the game officially. It's the age-old question, Jordan. Did Houston win that series, or did the Thunder lose it, squander that opportunity to advance? Yeah, I'll, I'll give Houston credit. Who says James Harden doesn't play defense? <laughs> Although he was guarding a lot of Lou Dort as he went for 30 earlier this evening. Raise your hand if you knew who the heck Lou Dort was up until like two days ago. Ironically, I have heard of Lou Dort because, interestingly enough, I called a couple of his Arizona State games with the guy we're going to play the interview with, Corey Williams. He definitely played arguably the game of his life here in this one. Uh, he has been a defensive stalwart, I think, the entirety of – uh, this late season here for OKC, but they had the chance. Chris Paul missed a mid-range jumper uh, that would have been crucial. Danilo Gallinari put the nil in Danilo in the way that he played down the stretch. I mean, was just bad. And so I do think that you can say OKC squandered this opportunity away. Uh, was Houston the better team overall? Probably. That said, OKC had their chance. They had that game and series at their fingertips, and they failed to execute when it mattered the most. And interestingly enough, analytically speaking, when it came to clutch time or crunch time, however you want to refer to it, which is the last five minutes when a game is within five points, OKC actually had some of the best analytics in terms of their average 14 points per game in those clutch situations down the stretch. They only had six in this one. And so they fell short of what their standard and their expectation was in these situations. And had they not, they'd be moving on to play the Lakers. Time to move on, and let's get to some traveling ballers. Paul Honda of the Honolulu Star Advertiser, he penned an article about a group of Hawaii football players at the prep level who have transferred to the mainland to play football in places like Idaho and Utah, where prep football is still being played, even amid the pandemic. What do you think of this move by several island ballers taking advantage of these circumstances? Yeah, I don't, I don't blame them at all. I, I really don't, right? You and I have both covered high school sports at one point or another over the last, you know, X amount of years. And, and it is big here for sure. And the, the amount of recruitment has gone up every single year. And, and so for, for a lot of these kids, right, it's a tough decision because Hawaii is attempting to play football sometime after January. But there's no guarantee, Right. And so if you feel comfortable enough, you know, a lot of these guys got family on the mainland, especially, you know, in places like Utah and Idaho. Um, and if you feel like, hey, that's your best shot to get a season in, go for it. Right. I don't begrudge those kids um, for, for, for taking a shot there, um, you know, the understanding the risk, hopefully very well uh, as to just the health impacts as well. Um, but they, they run the risk of, hey, if that season gets shut down. You know, I, I would imagine it's pretty unlikely that they can transfer back home to their schools here in Hawaii and then try and attempt to play in the spring or whenever they uh, let uh, the kids play football here in Hawaii. So it, it's risky for sure for a, a number of different reasons. But, you know, I, I really don't blame these kids who are, who are looking for an opportunity to play and, and, you know, a lot of them looking for an opportunity to go make a name and, and hopefully get uh, an opportunity to play at the next level. This, this whole sort of back and forth uh, in terms of players – taking advantage of situations and trying to just find themselves in places where they have the greatest amount of exposure. That's nothing new. I think that it is just simply more emphasized because we are amid this pandemic and you actually have only a select few programs that are in action, that are still playing and are still activated when it comes to prep football. So uh, I guess the timing couldn't be more perfect for these players. You just hope 
uh, that all of the safety procedures are being practiced uh, because uh, it is under these circumstances, I, I think we can all agree it is somewhat of a risk. All right, now time to move on to our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and it is our discussion with Corey Williams. He is an Arizona Wildcat basketball alum, played for the late coach Lute Olson, who just passed away this past week at the age of 85. I've had the privilege of working with him for uh, games on ESPN. He often covers the Pac-12, also works in insurance, uh, and he's just an all-around good guy. So let's go ahead and play that interview right now with Corey Williams. Hey, what's up, Corey? Good to see you, man. Uh, great always being able to talk with you. I hope all is well. How's things going so far on your end? Pretty good. You know, it's uh, been definitely a def- difficult few days, uh, obviously, with the loss of Coach O, but we're all hanging in there and working from home and trying to stay safe during a pandemic. Just everywhere you turn, it's something you got to pay attention to. You know, you got to stay on top of a lot of different things lately. Yeah, and, and so under these kinds of circumstances where something like this happens, you know, you lose someone that connects so many people that are part of this Arizona basketball fraternity, and yet there are limitations on how you can connect to them because of the circumstances with the pandemic. What has that been like, the, the sort of outreach to some of your former teammates and some other alums of the Wildcat program? Well, you know, we had a we had a Zoom call Saturday last Saturday set up by some of the other guys, Steve Kerr, Harvey Mason, um, some players, and I mean, there were 200 people on the call, um, former coaches, players. Uh, it was just really great because from a, from an emotional standpoint, we needed that. We needed to see each other, and there were a lot of tears, uh, a lot of guys telling some stories. Um, Pretty much a lot of anybody who was affected by Coach O worked with him or played for him. You know, everybody, we all had a short story to tell and we had to cut it short because there were so many people, but we let a lot of guys speak. And, and Matt Brazzi, uh, his grandson, uh, talked a lot about Coach and Sean, and we heard from Steve and we heard from Gilbert and Channing and Richard and all the guys who were uh, more notable players. But uh, everybody uh, that was touched by Coach O, it was good for us because we knew we wouldn't be able to get together in person. Um, we're definitely planning a reunion next summer, hopefully when things get better. Um, you know, Miles Simon and, and David Stoudemire are pretty adamant about getting the entire uh, legacy together. So um, we'll see if it happens in Tucson. I'm pretty sure it will. But for us, we all have coach in common. I mean, what's amazing about it is um, you've got hundreds of guys that have this one guy in common. And when you remove him from the formula, those hundreds of guys are still friends anyway. So it's not like he's the pass through. It's like, we're all family and I'm tight with guys I never played with because of that one common factor. So I think that's what's unique uh, about our situation here at Arizona. You know, you hear so much about collegiate athletes and relationships with coaches and, you know, a lot of them refer to coaches as sort of father figures. And uh, sometimes that can almost uh, come off as, as a bit trite uh, in, in the way it's described. But you posted a really incredible tribute to Coach O uh, on social media, and it seems as though uh, what he meant to you was something that was more substantial than just the standard player-coach relationship. Yeah, you know, I, I look at it in terms of, you know, my parents uh, were very strict, um, are, you know, dis- were disciplinarians. I had, you know, traditional, both, you know, both parents in the house. So coming from their house and going to play for Coach O, it wasn't that much of a culture shock to me because I was used to structure and deadlines and my way or the highway. Um, 
so it wasn't so much the father figure thing with me and coach, but what it really was is you're a young man trying to figure your way through life. Basketball is one challenge. Academics is another challenge in your social life. And then becoming a young man, um, especially when you're a young black man, you're trying to figure out, okay, what is adulthood about? How do I carry myself? What are some basic principles I need to develop? And we all just were very fortunate to be around coach at that time because even if you didn't agree with the way he moved or the way he lived, you saw how effective it was. And it was undeniable. It's like, be on time, be professional, follow through, give it your all. Like basic principles you saw in practice every day. So when your way wasn't working, you was kind of be like, I should probably try to do what coach, what coach would do in this situation. That will probably work. And nine times out of 10, um, you didn't even have to go to him for advice because he's been yelling advice at you for years. So you already know what he's going to say. So he's going to say, well, this is where you messed up. Or this is what you should have done. This is how you conduct yourself. So uh, him taking us all around the country, making us go to five-star restaurants, staying in nice hotels, making us go to mixers and dinners and booster events and wear shirts and ties and all that crap that college kids hate. When you graduate college and you're technically a man, if you don't know how to move in that world, you're going to struggle and it's going to take some time to learn. With Coach O, it was kind of like prep school for everything all of our alums have been into, from broadcasting to coaching to professional endeavors. It was literally a crash course in success. And what Coach taught us is that there's no shortcuts. Like, okay, we've got a 20-win season, and everybody goes, oh, we want to have a 20-win season. Well, come on out to Arizona and run, run, run a mile with us at 5 in the morning. You want a 20-win season? Come lift weights five times a week even the day before a game. You want a 20-win season? Practice for three and a half hours. You want a 20-win season? Play for a coach that will sub you out after one defensive mistake. The guys at Chapel Hill know what I'm talking about. The guys at Duke know what I'm talking about. Some of the guys at UCLA know what I'm talking about. But that is the great lesson you learn from Coach O, is that success is, a, is an accumulation of a, of, of a thousand little tiny deeds. And people may not be around to watch you do those things. They'll be around to watch you grab the trophy. They'll be around to high-five you after the win. But you've got to put in the work. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned some of the other programs, or at least allude to other programs. And there was another coaching legend that was lost here this past week in John Thompson at Georgetown. And I just wonder what your perspective is on sort of the common theme you think that creates one of these legendary coaches. In the case of Lute Olson, he took over an Arizona program that was struggling, and he was able to create this juggernaut of a program in then the Pac-10 and, and now the Pac-12. Uh, and you have John Thompson, who you look at Georgetown and its composition, and it had no business being a basketball powerhouse, and he was able to create that and establish that. So based on your experiences and, and as a broadcaster of college basketball, what do you think the primary common theme is or trait or characteristic of one of these coaches to be able to build and establish what John Thompson and Lute Olson were able to? I think the main key is that they were put in situations where they were allowed to let their personality become the program. In other words, I'm going to lead 
and I'm going to be unashamed and tell you these are my principles. This is what I believe in. And it takes a lot to put yourself on the line. Sometimes you just coach and show up and do the job and let the record speak for itself. They had a personal vested interest in the program. They were the face of the program. The rules and the guidelines from the top down were based on their personality. They had athletic directors that allowed them to be the per- Their personalities were such that they could be the Lord and master of their program. That's a very rare opportunity you get as a coach. If I want guys up at 530, I don't want to hear anything from the AD. I don't want anything from compliance. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to run my team. It's a trust from parents and, and, and faculty and administration to let a coach really shape a program based on his personality. If someone doesn't like it, then they can transfer somewhere else. And I don't say that in a dismissive way, because if you look at the list of transfers from Arizona from the eighties to 2000, there were all Americans that transferred away from it. I mean, guys that played in the NBA came, didn't really fit and they left is no hard feelings. They were, they were great players, but what wasn't going to happen is we weren't going to change the program for your talent because we've had talented players who did this. So if you're talented and don't want to do this, it's no hard feelings. Good luck. Have a great career. But when you talk about John Thompson, you talk about Lou Olson, um, those are the type of coaches that were given. They earned the respect of the community. They earn the respect of the administration of the schools. They earn the trust of parents. They earn the respect of the media. When they spoke, you know there wasn't a fake phony bone in their speech because they didn't have to answer to the media. The media could never apply pressure to John Thompson or Lou Olson. Their success speaks for themselves. If anything, guys put their pens and pads down and learn something when those coaches talked. If you're covering sports and they start talking, their credibility really is very rarely questioned. And that's because they produce the results. But I think when you have a coach who puts his personality on the line and then the, then the school enjoys success and young men are shaped and have success later on in life, that's about as close as you can get to having a family member like in your life helping you out. Because a lot of coaches can come do some of that and fall short of all of it, because I mean, I look at a football coach, he's got hundreds of guys on scholarships, it's almost impossible to have that impact on all those guys, because it's just the numbers game. But basketball is that rare sport where, you know, I know some families that got 11 kids in it, you know, so it's not difficult to create a family atmosphere when it's only 12 guys. So I think that's what set them apart. I think the courage that it took to stand out there and say, this is what I believe, you know, a lot of people make, you know, talk about Coach Olson. He never cursed. He didn't swear. As a personal decision, I'm sure he knew how to. He just didn't carry himself that way. But he's also the same coach that never backed out of an agreement. He's also the same coach that was always at practice before us. He's the same coach that would watch film till 2 in the morning. He was running a Division I program, a top Division I program, well into his 70s, fully functioning, recruiting, airports, hotels, games, all that. So his level of dedication was rare because as a player, you felt compelled to match that. Like, how can I let this old dude outwork me? Like, that's not possible. I'm a young guy. I'm 19, 20 years old. I got to at least do what he's doing. 
And if I do what he's doing, I got a shot to play in the NBA. How great is that? Yeah, that, that, that personality, uh, that, that sort of commanding presence. Uh, I'd seen uh, you sort of refer when you first sort of got acquainted with Coach Olsen as, as a guy who, who had a bit of swag as a head coach, you know, the, the way he sort of patrolled the sidelines, the way he carried himself. Uh, what, what exactly did you mean by that, uh, you know, describing Coach Olsen as having a little swag? Well, you know, I look at it and I think about swag and, and swag sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a confidence you portray in your mannerisms or whatever. But then that really, now that I think about it, it's not accurate because Coach O really didn't have swag. That's legit who he was. It's a game. I'm going to wear a suit. I'm going to look good. And this is how I want to present myself. It wasn't an act. It wasn't for show. It didn't matter how other college coaches dress. I mean, I remember the day that, um, Coaches were doing the coaches for cancer, and they were going to wear gym shoes. And it's like, was Lute Olson going to wear gym shoes? I mean, the first time he coached a game, you know, he would always do the Hawaiian shirt in Maui. That was a big deal, seeing coach out of uniform in a Hawaiian shirt. It was like, dude, he never is not dressed to the nines for college basketball. When you see someone who's comfortable in their own skin, living their truth, and that's how I want to present myself, and these are my principles, and I'm not going to be shaken or moved, that's powerful for young people. So when I was a young kid watching him at Iowa, I don't want to be corny, but he, he stood out. He was like majestic. I'm like, yo, who's the dude in the suit with the white hair? Like he was walking up and down the sidelines. He was pointing, he was yelling. And it was like, he looked like, uh, he looked out of place. He looked like he was too sophisticated for that scene. I was like, he doesn't fit. He's on a whole other level. He shouldn't be there. He probably should be coaching in the NBA somewhere. But that's the vibe you got off of him was the success. And then what was scary was when you got around him, you got a chance to access the cheat code and see what put him together. And you think you're smart and you think you know it all. And he starts reciting your personal individual stats over the last three games to bolster his argument on why you should pass the ball or tell you, this is how I want you to play. Did you realize when you're on the left side of the, when you're on the left, when you're on the left side and you go baseline, you're shooting like 80%? I didn't know that, but he does. And he knows that about the other, he knows stuff like that about every guy on scholarship. So it's kind of, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm a little emotional because he's my coach, but it's that Russell Crowe, beautiful mind stuff that he does, that he did, that made Dean Smith special makes Roy Williams special, makes Coach K special. They play, they coach as hard as guys play. And unfortunately, that's kind of rare these days. Uh, I do want to, while we're talking with you, make the, the difficult transition to, to just touch on a couple of other subjects because you mentioned being a broadcaster uh, for ESPN, oftentimes covering the Pac-12 conference. Uh, and you also talked about the years that Arizona would play in the Maui Invitational. Stanford was to be the Pac-12 representative in the Maui Invitational this coming year, but then the Pac-12 announced, and there is some discussion as to things that may happen on the periphery, postponing all sports in this calendar year until after January 1st. But there have also been some uh, peripheral discussions about a possible bubble for Pac-12 basketball, uh, a lot of stuff that's still obviously evolving and very much up in the air. Uh, what do you anticipate? What are you bracing yourself for as far as this upcoming college basketball season in the Pac-12 specifically? What I expect is 
the Pac-12 basketball may possibly continue as scheduled, just conference only, with a strong emphasis on testing and quarantining before games. I mean, obviously, controlling where all these basketball players go throughout the week is going to be difficult. But if they're all doing online classes and there's very little movement, I would expect the Pac-12 to try to have a conference season with the travel and just mandate that testing and results be shared. Guys that test, step aside, so that when those guys are out there running and pushing and sweating and breathing all over each other, it's, you know, 20 guys that tested negative for COVID. And there's very low risk of them transmitting it to each other, even though I understand the, the time that it may take for it to show up. What I'm hoping for is the Pac-12 bubble in Las Vegas. <laughs> so you and me can go get steaks and hang out for like seven straight weeks, get them in Vegas, throw them at the MGM, three games a week, 18 game schedules over in six or seven weeks. No need to have a tournament, just regular season, maybe one championship game, one place, two, or the top four play it out. But put them all in LA or Vegas for six weeks. They're all in online classes anyway. Pick the best hotel you can find and let's do that. And they follow the NBA version of the bubble. You know, if the, if the first steak dinner is on you, I'm down with that for sure. Hey, you know me, the first steak dinner, we're going to Sizzler. Is Sizzler still open <laughs> Vegas? I got Sizzler money. I got Sizzler money for you. I may go somewhere else, you know, the next night. But for you and me, I got you for Sizzler. For oh, sure. all right, all right. I'll take what I can get. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what has been your observation of how this thing has evolved as it pertains to college sports, uh, where you have power five conferences like the Big Ten, like the Pac-12, who made very early calls on postponing fall sports. Uh, but you have other power five conferences like the SEC uh, that has stayed very much uh, diligent on the idea that they are going to play a football season and they are going to play a football season in its entirety. Uh, the right. disparity there is is striking. What have been your thoughts on it? Well, there's two thoughts. First is, um, you know, different conferences operate under different financial mechanisms. So when the SEC says we're going to play football, it's kind of like you have to play football. Your billion-dollar deal with CBS, the revenue, how big it is. You have some athletic departments within the SEC that football makes all the money. I mean, they're operating under a different reality than other conferences are. Some of the mid-majors that bowed out because it's a wash to them. Maybe their football program even loses money. So they're like, we'll sit this one out. So the financial realities have dictated a lot of the responses. The second thing I take from this is, and this is the skeptic in me, and we got to go back a number of years to when this athlete monetization thing started. The sentiment was, you don't care about the student athlete. You're just profiting about, off them mercilessly over and over again. It's a corrupt, it's not, it's not corrupt. It's an unfair system with the student athlete at the center being profited from without any remuneration at all. That was the argument. COVID hits and that argument no, we care. It's about the students. The kids come first. That argument is now put to the ultimate test because it's easy to pay that lip service and rake in the dough. And yeah, you build some nice dorms and the kids don't pay for scholarships and they get any kind of pair of Jordans they want and they travel on charter flights. But that's still a drop in the bucket 
compared to the overall haul of college athletics financially. So what I look at is you've got two different demographic groups. You've got older people whose livelihood and paychecks are dependent on this 18 to 24 year old group of kids. They're paying mortgages, they got kids in college, they got investments, they're well compensated within their athletic departments, within the television networks. You've got a group of adults whose livelihood depends on these kids. Now they're all in sports and entertainment, so they're, they're inextricably tied to each other. Their attitudes on their safety, their attitudes on what's best for them, their attitudes about their own self-interest. I'm sitting back with my arms crossed like, here it is. We are actually gonna find out the truth. Not what you say in the newspapers, not what you say at the, at the, at the banquets or in the game program. We are actually going to see if the safety and the kid, health of the kids and student athlete comes first above everything. And it's been, it's interesting to watch people try to, yeah, we care about the kids. And some coaches are very sincere. I mean, acceptable loss. What is an acceptable loss? A dead football player, a dead basketball player, that's not acceptable to anyone. I don't care how much your annual salary is. I don't care what it does to the school's budget. That's a very principled stance to take. And you have a lot of people who've taken that stance. And then you have a lot of other people in the thousands whose livelihood is in jeopardy if these sports don't take place. So the fallout for a school that doesn't have a football season and they start canceling non-revenue generating sports, those are hundreds of other student athletes that have nothing to do with football that all of a sudden aren't on scholarship anymore. They're thinking about those kids. So it's really a difficult time. I'd be the first to say there is no 100% right way to deal with this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the insurance industry and, you know, we calculate risk. Everybody's pain threshold is different. Everyone evaluates risk differently. I'm terrified of dogs. You guys may walk over and pet people's dogs all the time. I'll never do that. My perceived risk is different than yours. COVID comes out. 380 million people in this country, 380 million different perceived levels of risk. How do you possibly get all those people into, to buy into an approach to something like college football that involves thousands, if not millions of people? I mean, it's rough. I mean, you've got entire communities built on tailgating and hotels and rental cars and restaurants and SEC football is massive. I mean, it's massive. So, I'm watching to see if there's any truth to that argument. We care about the kids, but I also understand the realities of finance. Guys are trying to power through this time and keep the lights on, you know, at the networks, at the schools, at the universities. It's just, there's no easy answers anywhere. I do think it's been very impressive to watch the, the, the players, the athletes, um, both the collegiate and the professional level, but particularly the collegiate level, sort of find their voice realizing sort of this moment that you describe where they've got a lot of agency and they are exercising that, whether it's the PAC 12 unity movement, whether it's, you know, sort of the, the broad college football players putting out their statement. Heck, we saw it at the professional level with the buck sort of spurning on this, you know, almost continent wide sports shutdown for a couple of days and, and doing things like getting the attorney general of Wisconsin on the phone and, and pushing for, for movement and action as opposed to just talk. Uh, what have you made of, of, of all of this on the collegiate side and, and even the NBA sort of leaving these boycotts, if you will, uh, over the last several months and, and even just this past week? 
you know, when I first thought about it, I was like everyone else. I was very impressed at these young people for injecting themselves into political situations to be a, a spokesperson, to use their platform, um, to create awareness and get their voice out there. Um, and then as I thought about it more and more, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, it became, it made more and more sense to me. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. The first thing that I, I, had, I, I kind of realized was in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all throughout the civil rights movement, black people, whether they were cooks, chefs, painters, taxi cab drivers, hotel workers, regular people from all walks of life left their jobs to protest for civil rights. They went to marches, they, they, held, they held demonstrations, and these are people with regular nine to five working class Americans who risked their own personal safety. They risked their job making you know, eight, $9,000 a year. They, they risked everything to participate in a march. So to see a 23 or 25 or 27 year old millionaire wear a shirt with a slogan, that's not even in the same ballpark as what they used to do. However, what they're doing is way more impactful and some, some would argue just as impactful, if not more. So on the general scheme of things, it's like there were people that got fire hoses and dogs sicked on them and now in 2020, it's like protest, boycott a game, put a slogan on your shirt, put a slogan on your shoes, um, make people take notice. They're fighting the same battle in a different manner. Um, what they have to lose is, you know, obviously uh, not as much as prior generations, but the fact is they're doing it. And the second thing that I think about is I try to put my mind in the mindset of the young people because I'm, you know, I'm 46 now. I'm not young anymore. Um, they have grown up in a world where this is foreign to them. They've grown up in a world where they haven't really experienced or seen a great deal of racial injustice and inequity. And now this explosion of internet and instant social media, they're starting to witness some things that they don't agree with. And I have to remind myself what it's like to be 18 to 25 years old. You know, you, 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 you're, you're, you're learning about the world, you, you feel empowered. And these young people reject what they're seeing. They don't, they don't believe in it. They don't think it has any place in our society. And they reject it because one, they haven't had to deal with it. It's not normal to them. And then the second thing that I have to remind myself is, when you're that young, all you're thinking about is these, if the only thing different from me and these people in these videos is that I'm an athlete. So you start to think I'm actually protesting because I'm from these neighborhoods. I know these people. These people could be me if not for athletics. They don't see themselves different than a lot of these people who are suffering. So for them, they feel compelled to say something because they identify a lot more closely with those folks. When I, when I was a collegiate athlete in the 90s, you know, these types of things were going on, but it, it wasn't as prevalent in, in terms of the media. But I was a recruit. 
I was an All-American. I was Mr. Basketball. I was a Wildcat. People gave me my identity. And I think what's, what's scaring, what, what's motivating these young people is they know who they are. They know the cities and the neighborhoods that they're from. They know these types of things happen. And they cannot be silent about it. They, they're, they're pretty much facing to say, okay, yes, I'm an NBA player, but I'm also a young black man. And these are some concerns that I have. I don't mind that you see me as an NBA player, but I also want you to see me as a black man. And I'm, I'm fairly, I'm really impressed with the leadership from the older NBA players. I wish that, and this is a personal statement I'm about to make. I wish that we had more activists for the cause so that the responsibility didn't fall on these young people the way that it has. But I'm so glad that they're willing to step in because let's be honest, LeBron James Twitter will reach more people than any black politician could ever reach in a day. That's just the pop culture of society that we live in. So uh, using their popularity, using their fame, I love the fact that the NBA as a, as a collective group has gotten involved in this movement because we talked about Coach Olsen, we talked about family. If you peel back the layers of the NBA and you look at the demographics, you have white owners, you have GMs, you have coaches, you have every race and ethnicity in the NBA. You also have every age demographic wrapped up in the NBA and they're all moving together. So if I was society at large, I'd be like, well, look at the NBA. They've got a diverse amount of people that love each other and work alongside each other every day from the front offices of the NBA teams to the trainers, to the players, to the coaches, to the GMs. There's every gender, there's every race, there's every financial background, every cultural background. And they all say one thing, we should have equality. It's really weird in 2020, there would be an argument counter that, like who's against equality? So I'm proud of the guys, um, for the fans that are turned off by their voices. I, I don't agree, but you know, if, if that's, you know, if that's what turns you off, if equality makes you uncomfortable, I don't really have a whole lot to say to you, to be honest. Well, uh, it is certainly a remarkable time in which we live and we are seeing history play out uh, right before our eyes in, in an almost minute by minute uh, type of process. Uh, Corey, you're exceptional, man. Uh, the way you were able to encapsulate all this stuff uh, is really great and, and, and it's uh, been an honor to talk with you again and, and looking forward to hopefully being able to, uh, you know, do what we used to do back in the old days and announce college basketball games in hey. front of people. You know, I'm great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think they'll find some way to have the games. Um, and then, like I said, I'll find some way to save up for that Sizzler State dinner. <laughs> $12.99 is my budget for you, buddy. That's all I got. That's you got, I got it. All-you-can-eat shrimp as well on hey, the yeah, side, for sure. There you go, for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. Take care, bro. Yeah, take it easy. Bye. All right. Thanks once again to Corey Williams for jumping on with us. Always a pleasure to talk to him. It is time for our post game best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. 
Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, Jordan, what is your best for this episode of the pod? Yeah, my best. Uh, saw this on Twitter yesterday, but uh, Rockney Freitas, one of the all-time greats in Hawaii sports history, one of the big figures, and I mean that literally uh, in Hawaii sports history. Kamehameha graduate, played his college ball at Oregon State, played 11 years in the NFL, 10 of them for your Lions, Kanoa, had one year with the Bucks. but he is being inducted into the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame, the state where he went and played his college football for the Beavers, longtime administrator in multiple roles within the University of Hawaii system as a professional uh, following his playing days. So right on to Rockney. Uh, and I bring it up because Rockney Freitas has to be one of the all-time great names <laughs> in any sport anywhere around the world. It's hard to top Rockney Freitas, especially as a football player and a lineman, a guy who's got his hand in the dirt. Especially as a member of the Portuguese-American community, you love that name, Rockney Freitas. Uh, I know that family well. His two sons played top-level mm -hmm. football. Uh, his oldest son, Makai, played at Arizona, interestingly enough. We just talked with Corey Williams, an Arizona basketball alum, and so did uh, his other son, Makoa, who went on to play in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, so just a wonderfully talented family, uh, and our best to Rockney Freitas. Already in the Oregon State Hall of Fame, so it just makes sense for him to be in the Oregon Hall of Fame. Congratulations to him. All right, my best, I'm going to go back to basketball. And this was an observation that we made while we were watching the games today. And basically, it is the impact of Kentucky Wildcat basketball on this NBA playoff. Uh, I mean, you're talking about players like Anthony Davis, Bam Adebayo, Eric Bledsoe, Tyler Hero, uh, Jamal Murray, Ennis Cantor, Michael Kidd Gilchrist. We're not done. You're talking about Shea Gilgis Alexander, uh, Nerlens Noel. I mean, the list goes on and on of Kentucky ballers who have had an impact or are having an impact on these playoffs say what you will about coach cal and that program a lot of people say that hey they should have more national titles but he always goes for the one and done say what you will man but he puts dudes in the league and they are not just in the league they are thriving cal can recruit right there's no denying that he he knows talent that is for sure and he can get them to lexington yeah, it's really impressive how many Kentucky guys. you got to have multiple Kentucky guys on your team if you're going to make a run in the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. And you know that if it's Coach Cal, it's on the up and up. Nothing shady about it. Absolutely not in the background. No, no, not, not whatsoever. All right, let's get to our worst. What's your worst, Jordan? Yeah, my worst. Um, we were talking about the Rays and the Yankees in their series. So their, <laughs> their series ended today was delayed because of a drone. This is already the third drone delay in a major league game this season. It's not like the season's been going on very long. This is, this is kind of the world we live in now. Some people are just flying drones. I think there was one at Target Field in Minnesota earlier this season. I'm not sure where the other one was of the three. But, I mean, just, just keep the drones away. You know, there's, there's too much. Amazon's got an approval to, like, deliver packages via <laughs> drones. That's going to go well, I'm sure. So, yeah, just stay away from the fields. We're trying to enjoy a game. Yeah, drones and jetpacks. Did you hear about the dude that was flying over LAX with a yeah. jetpack? Like, oh my gosh, the world we're living in. I swear, it's like out of some science fiction novel or movie. It's just crazy. All right, my worst, 
the new Dancing with the Stars roster has been released. Let me just say, I am not a regular or frequent viewer of this program, but it is always in the headlines whenever they announce a new season and the competitors list. There are some doozies this time around. Among the competitors, you have the rapper Nelly. You have NFL tight end Vernon Davis. You have NBA vet Charles Oakley. That's going to be interesting. And listed as a, quote, animal activist from the documentary series Tiger King, you have good old Carol Baskin. Yes, Carol Baskin, who is suspected of possibly having murdered her husband. She is going to be on Dancing with the Stars. It's not a who's who as much as a who the hell decided on these people it is crazy the world we live in yeah dancing with the stars has been going on for quite a while now i've got some fond memories i used to watch it with uh, my late grandmother like on monday night so it was a little sentimental for me but it, it has gotten to the place where it is really not dancing with the stars anymore it is like dancing with people you maybe might have heard of <laughs> at some point uh dancing with the vaguely familiar that's the era that we are in now with this show all right that's our best and worst brought to you by waste pro hawaii maui owned maui operated for Maui's people. All right, that's it for us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at TalkSports808. Thanks once again to Corey Williams for jumping on with us. We appreciate his time. Jordan, until next time, have a good one, my man.